Welcome, everyone. This is the inaugural episode of the Digital Guardian podcast. I'm your host, Will Gradito, and with me today are Nate Lord, Greg Funaro, and Tim Bandos. Guys, take a moment to introduce yourselves. Thanks, Will. Yeah, my name is Nate Lord, and I'm the editor of the Digital Guardian blog, and excited that we're kicking off our, our first uh, podcast here. Good day, everyone. I'm Greg Fanaro. I manage corporate communications at Digital Guardian. Very excited for our first debut of the Digital Guardian podcast series. And I'm Tim Bandos. I'm the director of cybersecurity here at Digital Guardian, and I'm looking forward to having future podcasts. Well, great. Thanks, guys, for taking time out of your day uh, to, to uh, kick this in the inaugural episode off. Uh, I'm really pleased to be uh, a part of this and, and hosting this. <clears throat> um, our goal here is to provide as much information uh, as possible with respect to the threat landscape, data protection, threat detection, identification, and mitigation, as well as talk about uh, current events, strategies to, that can be deployed within enterprise environments, and just all things related to information security. So uh, I think it's important right now if we kick off with some, uh, some current news, and certainly one of the most recent uh, events uh, with respect to the greater information security community of late was the RSA conference in San Francisco. And uh, Greg, Tim, you guys were out there. What were your thoughts with respect to the conference this year? What did you see that was interesting? What did you think that was curious? What was the vibe like? What can you tell us about it? So yeah, Tim Bandis here. Um, so you know, from my perspective, I was pretty much constrained to the booth all day talking to customers, but it was great because I got to really discuss you know, what they were experiencing, what were their thoughts, you know, how do they perceive the conference was going, you know, what are the, the latest trends in cybersecurity, what are they looking for you know, from their own you know, personal perspective in securing their enterprise. Um, and f I, from, from what I gathered, it was really around three different things that kind of stood out to me. Um, a lot of technologies now are focusing on like quote unquote cyber kill chain you know, disruptors. You know, the ability for a technology to identify across that kill chain or attack lifecycle, um, you know, actually preventing cyber threats, right? And, and there was a huge buzz around, around that and even just use of, of that terminology. Um, there's also a huge uptick, obviously, in, in EDR, uh, endpoint detection and response and threat hunting. Um, you couldn't walk by a single vendor's booth without seeing some form of threat hunting or endpoint agent security, um, you know, out at RSA, uh, which is great because, you know, they're really focusing on the endpoint now where a lot of these things are coming in, they're getting past our, our, our borders. Um, and unfortunately, you know, we have to kind of react and, and respond by, I think, further locking down the environment, you know, on the endpoint. Um, and then also there's a huge talk or discussion around leveraging AI, um, you know, artificial intelligence, uh, looking at user behavioral analysis, you know, basically taking the human element out for identifying anomalies uh, you know, within within your data. So, so that was really from my perspective. You know, when I was talking, uh, you know, as customers or as individuals were walking by, um, and also uh, a lot of questions around ransomware. Uh, you know, there was a ton of questions around. You know, how does your technology uh, kind of go up against ransomware? Very cool. Yeah, it sounds like a very uh, like uh, those are, those are uh, have been and remain hot topic items for the last year or so, and certainly I would imagine at, at RSA. They were, uh, there was no shortage of conversations around that. Greg, what did you think about what, what, what the conference uh, brought to bear this year? And what were your thoughts with regards to what the trends looked like, what, what vendors uh, were emphasizing, what customers were inquiring about, and what really are the problems or the challenges that people were bringing up uh, with regards to the, to the technologies that are being <clears throat> excuse me, promoted this year versus the last couple of years? Yeah, thanks, Will. Great, great question. So a, a number of uh, questions from prospects and customers that I received was related to really data discovery and classification 
which is starting to take on a lot more momentum and um, people want to understand where they can discover their sensitive data and how it can be classified in different ways. Uh, looking outside the booth, there were three major themes that I wanted to touch on. Tim kind of mentioned one with machine learning and endpoint security, but the three themes were um, securing the Internet of Things. Is it still a problem? Is it still secure? There didn't seem to be an answer um, coming, out of the, coming out of the conference for, uh, to secure all the devices, but I actually wanted to ask Tim, do you think that when it comes to IoT, there might be certain devices that should be definitely locked down and are potential risk? So yeah, that's a great question. I mean, IoT is the new frontier, uh, you know, of cybersecurity. I don't, you know, unless we get serious about that, I think we're going to be running into a lot of issues. And it's not just, you know, our thermostats or you know uh, our coffee makers at home that we, you know, necessarily be worried about. Yes, that there is an issue there or a cause for concern there, but also companies, uh, you know, manufacturing facilities that are leveraging technologies um, that have IoT essentially built into that. That is just an entrance vector into that organization a lot of times. So. So unless you know we're proactively building security into the code of these devices, um, I think we're going to have a large problem here, and you're going to start seeing probably a lot of vendors coming up with solutions in order to kind of combat that issue. Excellent, thank you, Tim. And second theme was the dearth of security talent. Now, what I noticed at the conference was 451 Research cited there were 1,500 vendors for information security, and Cisco said there were an average of 50 security vendors installed um, per enterprise. So is it a question of is there a dearth of security talent or are there too many security vendors, tools, and new dashboards to learn? Um, going back on, on Tim's prior experience being at a Fortune 100 manufacturing company, do you think that it's more of a dearth in security talent or is there too many security vendors and new technologies to learn for people to, to do at this time? Well, I think you have a combination of both, really, right? I mean, if, if we look across, um, you know, various organizations out there, I mean, yes, you do have, I think, solid, uh, you know, individuals that have that training, that background. Um, but for the most part, there is a dearth, right? There is a huge gap in security uh, skills, you know, having maybe even just a long-term, um, you know, experience with cybersecurity. It's just not there, right? A lot of companies or a lot of schooling and education, I mean, they're, they're really trying to focus on that, you know, develop that into their curriculum. But even, and I'm not really speaking against the teachers in a lot of these organizations, but sometimes they might have not even had that real-world experience, right? It might be just theory-based. So, when individuals go out into the real world, you know, they just maybe understand theory and applying that, you know, in the real world might be a little bit different. That would just be my only cause for concern. I'm not saying that's across everywhere, right? I'm sure without a doubt education, you know, in certain schooling um, areas are going to be, you know, pretty robust. But yeah, there's definitely a dearth. Um, and that's something that we need to focus on. We need to further develop that or companies need to realize, you know, that shortage exists and pair up with a managed services or, you know, an organization that can actually provide those capabilities. It's an interesting point, and I think you bring up a good one, right? Is with regards to <clears throat> two things, right? The dearth of, of the dearth of expertise uh, and the uh, the long communicated uh, need for more people working in the field. But the expert, the dearth of expertise, is really kind of key, uh, and that's and that's interesting, and that's not something you can necessarily grab from academic environments alone, right? To your point, without that real world experience. Theory is just that, it's theory. <clears throat> so it is a pretty, it is a pretty uh, interesting challenge in the sense that the industry for a long time has been talking about that, that problem, that, that lack of resources, right? But we haven't yet necessarily 
<coughs> excuse me, found a way to uh, narrow those gaps practically, have we? Thanks, Will. And then the third quest, the third theme I just want to touch on were some buzzwords I, I saw coming out of the show. Uh, Tim mentioned earlier, artificial intelligence, machine learning, security analytics, um, it, data visibility. It seemed like everywhere I walked, I would see the same messaging over and over again, um, you know, despite different colors, not different vendors uh, may uh, organize their booths. But my questions for, for actually Tim and Will is, do you see any of these buzzwords um, moving to actually legitimate technologies that can help you and help other security professionals, uh, either this year or into next year? From my personal perspective, uh, you know, I, you hear these terms like big data analytics, security analytics. Um, I think some companies aren't doing it right, right? And I think that's giving... Um, you know, it's giving off kind of the representation that it's not going to work that way. We need to maybe approach this from a from a different perspective. Um, you know, so I think it's all in how the company approaches security analytics. Um, kind of having that analyst in the box mentality, the ability to identify you know anomalous behavior, cyber threats, uh, you know, within the company through that big data and kind of bubble those those up to the top, right? You know, taking a lot of that hands-on work from, from a triage analyst or, or someone who really has to have that eyes on glass. I think we can be successful in, you know, actually in security analytics, but I think it's all in our approach and, you know, how we kind of further develop and build that out. I don't know. What do you think, Will? Yeah, I think it's an interesting point, right? You know, um, <clears throat> I think the more things advance technologically and the more we, we, we as an industry incorporate uh, new ideas and capabilities, uh, specifically speaking, those related to uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, et cetera, et cetera, uh, the more good we can do. But at the same token, or on the same token, I should say, <clears throat> we still can't discount the value of, of eyes on screen at some point in time, right? And as intelligent as, as these tools are and are becoming, and as uh, capable as they are with respect to decision making, it's still predicated on how they're trained, the data sets that they have access to, but at the end of the day, you still require some degree of, of human intervention, right? We haven't been able to, uh, as an industry, uh, cross that that cavernous you know uh, expanse between making taking an automated intelligence feeds from disparate sources of data within our enterprise environments, and then subsequently enabling the infrastructure, if you will, to make decisions and determinations in an autonomous fashion without the advent of a human being involved. <clears throat> it's been proposed on a number of different occasions. Uh, but at the same time, that human factor is really important. So it's an interesting point. Uh, it's, it's, and I think that we're going to see more and more uh, capabilities being brought to bear. And we're going to see new, uh, new deployment strategies wherein <clears throat> things like artificial intelligence, for example, are being pushed straight down to the endpoint, which we're already starting to see. So I think, I think, it's, I think we, have to, we definitely have to continue to pioneer down those paths and really uh, enable and ensure those technologies to... Uh, to provide the best the best uh, ends possible, but at the same time, we can't discount the value of the analyst. So I, I, I totally agree, and I guess I do struggle from time to time. I mean, what is it about that, though, that does require that additional eyes on glass? I mean, is it just because, you know, threat actors evolve and, you know, their tactics and techniques, how they move about within, you know, an organization changes? Or, I mean, what is it that requires, you know, um, you know, that additional, I guess, feedback from an analyst versus AI being able to combat that? I think, I think you hit it on the head. It's a combination of things. It's, it's the fact that at the end of the day, <coughs> excuse me, the threat actors are the adversaries, whether they're located in our backyards or, or halfway around the world, 
are just like you and I. They're people who are trained and who have expertise and who change their patterns of behavior if they're good. If they're not so good, they'll leverage the same patterns over and over again, at which point in time, things like machine learning or, or artificial intelligence systems can become acutely aware of them and subsequently recognize them and then per perhaps uh, make the, make decisions with respect to what they're seeing on, on the behalf of the staff of, you know, within an IT organization. But I think it's, it's, also, uh, it's, it's also a question of whether or not executive level staff members feel comfortable about allowing things, decisions to be made that have a real impact on the organization from a control perspective without the advent of a human being. So in other words, person in a perfect world, you and I might sit down and say, hey, we've got, if we had access to unlimited data sets, right? And we had uh, an intelligent enough system at our disposal that we can continuously train, we might feel good about allowing that system, provided that it had access to those limitless data sets and the and extra and more was constantly being trained and learning new pat pattern recognition and you know with respect to TTPs we might feel comfortable with with on a, on a personal level letting those letting those systems make determinations and, and ultimately speaking implement controls without our our knowledge or without our, our explicit permission but would a CISO would a CIO would a CEO would a board right that's I think that's where the question becomes is I don't think it's a question of fidelity of the technology or accuracy of the technology, or even the efficacy of the technology. I think it's a comfort level at an upper level at, at an upper level perspective within an organization. If that makes sense. Oh yeah, it makes complete sense. There's no way. I mean, I, I you know I hear that, and even coming from my last you know organization, there's no way you know our CIO, our CTO, any of those guys would have felt comfortable you know leaving that in the hands, regardless of how great the technology is. So I think that's always also going to be a hurdle. Um, that some of these AI companies are going to kind of face as well uh, for proactive prevention, leveraging you know their tech. Absolutely, I'll give you an even better example. Years ago, I don't know if you guys remember this, but <clears throat> years ago uh, there are two companies that come to mind explicitly with regards to this: Checkpoint and uh, Arbor Networks uh, pioneered early on automated rule generation uh, when you tied into their OPSEC. For in, in the case of Checkpoint, within the OPSEC infrastructure. Uh, and then Arbor had something where they could actually detect anomalies and subsequently create on-the-fly rules for a checkpoint firewall or a Cisco. I think it was PIX. I don't remember if it was ASA at the time. Maybe it was like between that that those time periods of, of uh, products. But in any case, the feature set, the capability was there, but I never saw anyone enable it. And the reason being is that somebody always wanted to verify, hey, is is this is this is this going to do more good than harm? You know, if I if I allow a system to create a rule that takes a mitigative action on a communication associated with a port or a protocol, is that going to prevent all the malicious activity? Maybe, maybe not. And if it does prevent malicious activity, great, but will it also potentially have a negative effect on authorized activity? So I, 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 it's, it's strange, right? Because we've been wrestling with this as an industry for a number of years. <laughs> so what else was going on at, at, at RSA? Um, I have one more that I wanted to throw out there, but um, it, it's more for both of your opinions. So. It seems, looking at the math and the, the growth of security companies, the nation-state cyber espionage is still, still high, and the ways to compromise and infect machines hasn't changed, being social engineering, mostly common vulnerabilities, yet the security industry is booming. Is there a fundamental shift that needs to happen to start solving these problems of data theft or monitoring, um, 
you know, other countries and a way to consolidate the different security tools to streamline the efforts and make it easier for security professionals to stop these threats before uh, attackers are in the system or exfiltrating information. Well, I think it's I think it's actually it's a, it's a convoluted uh, it's, it's a convoluted situation that uh, enterprise defenders are facing today, right? And when it's and, and that also and I would even say that that, that extends beyond enterprise uh, defenders uh, into the uh, incident response community, the forensic community, as well as the, the threat research community. Uh, we have we operate with the best information at our disposal, right? Whether that's publicly available information and intelligence, or whether that's privately acquired and or distributed disseminated information and intelligence. Um, and that's, that's important to note. And it's also important to note that uh, you're facing a, a, a diverse spectrum of adversary, right? Uh, in the sense that uh, you're not just facing a, a world that, that consists of script kiddies or even uh, agenda-driven hacktivists or even rudimentary level cyber criminals or fraudsters, right? To your point, there are, are much more organized criminal uh, entities present and operating and have been for several years, uh, oftentimes flying very low and, and slow under the radar. Uh, there are nation state proxies and nation states, and, and, they, all, and they all have varying <coughs> missions and agendas related to their work, and this is nothing new. And, there's, uh, and the reason I say it's nothing new is the fact, is, the, is largely because people want to append, uh, or people want to, to address what's occurring within the cyber security space as though it were something that's that's new in terms of uh, TTPs, right? In terms of, of those capabilities that are associated with threat actors, uh, in with regards to behavioral and operational tactics and strategies. Cyber is just a uh, is just a fancy word for transport, right? And 20 years ago, we didn't call what we call now cyber cyber. We refer to it as transport, <laughs> right? So um, what we're really dealing with, and this is a struggle I think that we see within the information security community, is the is the is the nexus between intelligence tradecraft and security tradecraft and those are different things right uh, so and I, I don't want to give you a really long answer but I think it's important in order to properly mitigate in, in a very effective and aggressive manner uh, emerging and advanced threats you really need to understand tradecraft and you need to understand the TTPs that Tim was talking about before and what those mean and that's more than just understanding uh, the origin and nature of, 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 of a, an IP address that's that's perhaps classified or categorized as being malicious or suspicious, or a, or a domain that falls into the same category, or even a file hash, right? Uh, those are all important, and they, and they certainly should be taken seriously and not and not dismissed. But those are pieces of the puzzle that help formulate a picture, a profile, if you will, related to a given threat actor and and their and their activities, whether it's part of an operation or a campaign. So, <clears throat> on one level, I think it is challenging for 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 the average defender. Who uh, may or may not be sitting within a, uh, a small, mid-sized business, or maybe even within a, a fairly large enterprise, who doesn't have the acumen or training at their disposal, and but who requires and really needs their vendors to be their partners, and that's where we come in, right? That's where organizations like like Digital Guardian and others come in to kind of fill that that void. Uh, so it is challenging because uh, the hope for those people is that their trusted partner partners, their vendors, will provide them with the information that they need to get their job done right to provide that mitigation strategy that they can enable via controls within their organization. However, they still need to be aware and cognizant of what's occurring within the threat landscape from an adversarial perspective. Uh, I'm not suggesting that every organization needs to have deep and wide threat intelligence operations behind the scenes with respect to their security operations and their overall programmatic endeavors, not at all. 
but they do need to be cognizant of the fact that we're dealing at the end of the day with an adversary or multiple forms and types of adversaries that may be uh, on the other side of the world or that may be in their backyard who operate <coughs> um, for express purposes. And that it's more, it's more important uh, and it's a much more, what's the best way to phrase this? It's a much more uh, convoluted problem set than simply whether or not I see a bad IP address or a domain. If that makes, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, so I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, let me maybe just give my, I guess, personal perspective, you know, with my experience, you know, dealing with threat actors in, in an organization. Um, you know, <clears throat> from a, an enterprise defender's perspective, they've got, you know, a million different holes that they have to worry about, right? Uh, you know, it takes a threat actor one single hole to get through there. So the way that we approached it was we just assumed um, that we were going to be breached. I mean, we assumed that they would get in somehow. It didn't matter you know, how much money we spent on our, you know, technologies at the gateway. I mean, <clears throat> basically the way that we approached it was, think of Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone, you set up all these traps, right? You set up a bunch of technologies um, and, and really focus on, we focus entirely a, a lot actually on the endpoint itself because we knew if they got in, you know, that's where they were going to play, right? That was their playground. The second they, they got into a box, they would start, you know, doing credential harvesting, credential dumping, they'd move laterally within the environment. So we'd set all these little traps, rules essentially, that would look and identify that type of activity, right? We would map, you know, TTPs, uh, you know, tax techniques, procedures associated with those groups, and we would look for that activity. Um, you know, if a specific threat actor ran, you know, ping-n3 to google.com, right? That was, that was part of their tradecraft. You know, we knew as soon as that happened within our environment, if it didn't happen all the time, that was potentially them in our in our environment. Um, so, so the way we approached it was, um, you know, prevention is nice, but detection is, is critical. It's imperative. It's almost required, right? And, and minimizing that initial infection detection time was really our goal. And, and I feel like if we were able to do that within a matter of hours or minutes, you know, we were successful. We at least knew that they got in and we could then patch it up and neutralize them uh, to kind of get them out, right? And then we would see that three-month cycle time where they have to rebuild infrastructure, get all new domains, you know, come back with new tools. So it cost them a lot of money too. But it did show that we, and it demonstrated, you know, that we, we were successful at least at getting them out. So, so that's my perspective. I mean, they're, they're out of our jurisdiction. They might be, you know, halfway across the world. There's only so much we can do. Um, but, you know, from an enterprise perspective, if you position yourself with the right technology, um, you can be successful at it. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you hit a key point, though, too, Tim, and that's the fact that, and this is a very, this is, in my opinion, the mark of a mature organization, is that you have to accept the fact that you will be compromised. And I think that that's, in a lot of respects, that's an unpopular <laughs> opinion or statement to make within the space uh, because no one wants to believe that that's possible, especially a CISO whose job may or may not hang in the balance uh, on a pendulum of, you know, associated with 18 to 24 months. But the reality is that, that for smart defenders is that you have to believe that. You have to be willing to accept the fact, suspend disbelief that you won't be hacked but it, rather embrace the fact that you are you are a target, either a target of opportunity or a target of intent. And as a result of that, you will be compromised. And now, of course, that varies from business and business and vertical to vertical. But at the end of the day, those who operate under the auspices that they will be compromised or that the likelihood suggests that they will, rather than that it will never happen to me, our odds are going to be favor, favorites with respect to mitigating the risk and ultimately uh, you know, recovering from it. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I want to hear prospects or people in, in general that I'm talking to, uh, and they say to me, oh, yeah, we've never been compromised. We've never been breached. We don't really have a malware problem. I mean, I almost feel bad for them. Like, I mean, it, 
maybe they are right. Maybe they're in a super lockdown environment. But for the most part, I've never seen really a clean environment. I mean, every environment we go into, uh, there's something there, right? There's something wrong. Whether it, even if it is commodity-based malware or stuff that needs to be cleaned up, there's always something. So I think going in, you know, with that mindset that the, that there are issues within your organization, and you know, kind of putting that right technology in there to at least detect it and clean it up, uh, you know, that's that's important. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <clears throat> so it sounds like RSA was a pretty was a pretty uh, a pretty interesting place to be this year. I wasn't there, but uh, I trust that you guys had a good time and, and got to uh, to speak to lots of interesting customers and uh, prospects as well as other vendors, which is pretty cool to see what what other people are are, are working with and uh, what they're up against uh, from an industry problem perspective. Really cool. Okay. Um, so next, uh, I think it's important and kind of carry on with current events. Uh, to talk about uh, a, a really interesting case that's emerging. And I say it's emerging only because it uh, there has only been really recent disclosure being made about it from one of the parties directly involved. And uh, we're gonna talk about this at a high level because we're, A, we, 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 we need to stress the fact that we're not involved in this. <laughs> B, uh, we're only going to be referencing publicly available data that comes directly from sources related to the case. And this is the curious case of Alphabet, Google, Waymo, Auto, and Uber. Say that five times fast. And the accusations that are being levied against uh, Uber, uh, the, the parent company of Auto, uh, with regards to tradecraft and, uh, and, and uh, an IP theft from Alphabet, Google, Waymo, uh, related to autonomous driving cars or self-driving cars. So guys, this came out, uh, hit the wire last week. There's actually a really interesting blog up on Medium uh, by the folks at Waymo, which is a subsidiary of Alphabet Google, um, that talks uh, specifically about this case. And uh, the, it's, it's actually entitled A Note on Our Lawsuit Against Auto and Uber. Goes into some pretty uh, deep detail. Uh, frankly speaking, I was rather surprised that they went into as much detail and named names the way that they did within, the, within this particular uh, public display. Uh, it only leads me to believe that they feel rather uh, certain that their forensics uh, investigation has led them to a place that, of confidence without question. But uh, have you guys read about this? What are your thoughts on this? I think it's really interesting from a data a data protection perspective, as well as from the advent of uh, an, insi an insider threat becoming more than that, but becoming someone who uh, absolutely engages in uh, allegedly industrial espionage with the intent to not just uh, subvert and, uh, and undermine their employer, but to go off and start another company, get it funded, and ultimately sell it for uh, what appears to be near a billion dollars to uh, a large technology startup in the Valley. So what do you guys think about that? Yeah, it uh, really caught my eye, Will, you know, always trying to keep up with, uh, you know, data theft stories, especially that industrial espionage or insider threat angle, um, you know, running the blog, it's something I try to keep an eye on. And uh, yeah, I think it was last Thursday, uh, Alphabet's Waymo, which is basically formerly Google's uh, self-driving car project, um, filed suit against Auto and, and Uber, um, alleging all this crazy, uh, you know, trade secret and intellectual property theft. Um, apparently, both companies had been working on this lidar technology, this light detection and ranging technology. Um, it's critical for self-driving cars. And, uh, you know, according to Waymo's allegations, it seems like a, an employee uh, who was involved in this project left taking with him about 10 gigs of 
confidential, you know, intellectual property design files. Uh, started this little startup called Auto. Was able to take it all the way to a six hundred and eighty million dollar acquisition by Uber, and uh, you know, here we are, almost a year later. Uh, all of a sudden, Waymo has become aware that it, it, it apparently uh, Auto was founded with some of Waymo's proprietary um, designs and, and intellectual property. Um, so yeah, definitely you know big story and, and one I wanted to bring attention to since I, I haven't seen it as as reported on. Um, but yeah, I, I guess what's most um, surprising to me in the story is is kind of the whole timeline here. Um, the employee who allegedly did all this, you know, was able to make off with, with 10 gigs of, of, you know, design files and sensitive data. Um, and, and again, go all the way to the point where his, his, his spin-off company has been established um, and, and sold for, for quite a sum before Waymo actually became aware of this. Yeah, that's true. In fact, according to the, their 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 recent release from Thursday, uh, Waymo, uh, as part really at the time they were part of Google <clears throat> before the establishment of Alphabet, uh, formed this team in 2009. That's really kind of an, an important element within the story. And uh, the idea was to obviously develop customized software and hardware uh, in-house that would ultimately enhance their capability to deliver on this auto-driving technology. And to your point, uh, the LiDAR technology, which is light detection and ranging technology, was key to that, to the success or failure of their initiatives. Um, <clears throat> the party who was cited in this particular case was a part of that team allegedly, which is interesting. And you're right, it, uh, he apparently was able to uh, download uh, tools uh, that enabled him to access data that he didn't necessarily have rights to, according to this and some other articles, as well as uh, other information, uh, approximately 14,000 highly confidential and proprietary design files from uh, from within Waymo, which is interesting. That included the LiDAR documentation as well as circuit board uh, drawings, so intellectual property. So this is really kind of an interesting case, isn't it? Because one could say, well, this is insider threat and this happens, and, that, and that's true. But this is really kind of, an, to your point, Nate, even more uh, interesting in the sense that he not only did he take that obviously for a reason allegedly but he took it and found that uh, allegedly found that a competitive company who brought to market comparable apparently uh identical technology uh that, that google had been working on in le less than a year's time if i understand things correctly which it, and what's interesting about that is, is if i'm reading these things correctly is that it took google somewhere in the neighborhood of seven years to develop this technology so uh, and that all became you know obviously attractive to potential investors and then subsequently to Uber as an acquisition target to the tune of almost $800 million, which is staggering to me. But uh, yeah, what do you guys think about that? I mean, what, now clearly the data that's in this, you know, that's been divulged in this public this public document is pretty damning. And again, I, for our purposes, I'm not going to go ahead into detail with respect to the name of the party involved or uh, anything of that nature. But what do you guys think about this? What do you, what do you think the, the implications of this story uh, will be within our industry, what do you think it means to other high-tech firms as they approach data protection strategies as well as challenges, and also the specter of industrial espionage? So we look at this story, you know, from my perspective, this is, once again, the most basic use case of, you know, someone leaving a company and taking a ton of data with them, you know, to, to actually start up something their own, you know, profit from that. Um, I, this happens all the time. 
I mean, this is not something that is brand new. I mean, I feel like we read about this a lot. Um, I've seen this in, in other you know, other companies and customers that we even monitor for. I mean, an individual maybe proactively looks for another job in another company. You know, they download a ton of material and they leave. Um, you know, if you have a data loss prevention technology implemented within your environment, all that stuff is logged. Uh, and if you have preventative measures in place, it actually stops it. But even with it being logged, you can tell right away and those logs can actually be used in, in the court of law. I mean, you can go through a deposition and literally provide that to the judge and it'll, it'll up, be help held in court. Uh, I've gone through some of that, some of that before in my past, and you know, it, those digital, at least from our perspective, Digital Guardian, where we actually use that in one of my prior companies, it was used as evidence. Um, so, I guess I just always take it back. I mean, this is once again so basic, you know, that without having any sort of protections in place to, to prevent that. I mean, I, I do think companies need to, to really think through that. They need to look at data protection not as maybe something secondary or, or at all. I mean, they really should consider it as a primary control within their environment. Yeah, and especially in this case, and when you look at a field like tech or a field like manufacturing where the cornerstone of your, your competitive advantage is is your IP. It, it's your R&D, um, your design documents, your, your blueprints, you know, everything you've done. And clearly with Waymo's case, it was a, you know, seven years worth of R&D. Um, but if that gets out and gets in the wrong hands, I mean, Otto was able to start a company that was acquired for you know, such an outrageous sum just six months later. So you can, you can shortcut, you know, a solid six years worth of research and development and really gain an unfair uh, advantage in the marketplace if, if, you know, if you are making off with someone else's IP. And, and for the, the company that loses that IP, uh, you know, obviously they're going to have a chance to regain some of their losses in court, but also with trade secrets, you know, when the cat's out of the bag, it's, it's kind of out of the bag. Um, what's also really interesting to me in this case is the way that Waymo actually became aware of this. Um, Will, as you mentioned, they have a, a pretty detailed um, account of uh, the employee's actions and how he was able to access the server, um, you know, and bypass some of the protections there. How he, you know, how much data and what kind of data he made off with. Um, how he was able to, you know, exfiltrate it to an external drive, and then ultimately wipe and completely reformat his machine. Um, so certainly, yeah. it seems like they have some of those logs now. But what's interesting to me is the the detection aspect. They didn't find out about any of this until a lidar technology supplier, um, who happened to be working with both Waymo and Auto, accidentally emailed Waymo some of Auto's. Um, design documents and someone at Waymo basically recognized them as, as their own work. Um, so all this happened and, and Waymo has the logs to, you know, alle allegedly has the logs to support, um, you know, ki kind of what was done here in the theft, but it, it took, you know, someone accidentally including the wrong person on an email for this to even come to light and who knows, uh, you know, how far it may have gone otherwise without being, you know, detected and and, and what kind of unfair advantage that could have uh, given in the marketplace. I feel like if we even take it back further, right? Like when, when this guy handed over his computer and it was wiped, I mean, I would have been like, why'd you wipe it, man? <laughs> like, what are you trying to do? I feel like I'd launch the investigation around then, you know what I mean? Because it just, it just doesn't seem right, you know? Right. I, I mean, I don't know. It's or or these things tend to, you know, can come up in exit interviews yep. or, you know, totally. when, when IT does a review, especially if it's just, you know, a resignation. And apparently the person who did this had even been pretty open uh, around, around the office 
with his intent of, of starting his own startup. Uh, so it, it's, it is pretty amazing that, you know, uh, made, it, made it so long before, you know, all this kind of came to surface, and now we're going to see a, a big lawsuit play out to see um, where, where this goes and, and what, what's really going on here. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. <clears throat> There's a, uh, it's, it's all over the, it's all over the wire, uh, and it has been since late last week and over the weekend. Uh, Wired picked it up, uh, as has uh, the LA Times and uh, the the NPR and a whole host of other people, right? Uh, and it's really kind of interesting because <clears throat> if the allegations are true, and uh, and and assuming they are, based off of the confidence that Waymo and Google and Alphabet have uh, in in their forensic evidence, evidence that I don't have any insight into, and, and no one on this call does, uh, that leads them to believe unequivocally that they can be uh, number one public and bold about naming names in the public record outside of the confines of a court, um, it's pretty damning. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty challenging. But you know, the interesting thing about it to me is, is that to your, to your point, you know, when, where were the safeguards and, and controls that, that ought to have been in, in place that presumably weren't, that should have mitigated this risk? Um, and, and secondly, uh, what level of hubris does one have to have in order to do, to carry off this type of uh, activity uh, and then subsequently be as bold as to go off and set up a competitor uh, based yeah, off of that tech, yeah. based off of that technology? Yeah, that's, it's pretty brash if it all, uh, if it's all, you know, proven to, to be as, as Waymo is alleging. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's definitely one we'll, we'll uh, keep an eye on and uh, certainly be, you know, watching that and, and covering that uh, over the next weeks as the case unfolds. So you can keep an eye on Data Insider, our blog, for some uh, future articles as we keep an eye on that story. And uh, I don't know, unless you guys have anything else, I think that probably could probably wrap for, for our first episode. Yeah, I think I think we're good. Yeah, thanks. I want to thank uh, Nate, Lord, Greg Fanaro, and Tim Bandos for their efforts and hard work to bring this to... Uh, to uh, fruition and uh, I'm Will Graggio and I'm um, your host and we will see you again next time. Thanks for listening to the Digital Guardian podcast. <laughs>